This is Hans Reamer, Montgomery County Council Member, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here, joined today by my colleagues Natasha Mayhew and Les Knapp. Natasha and Les, Michael is halfway to Guam, so thank you both so much for being with us today. Happy to do it. Yeah, glad to be here. A little sad we're not, you know, halfway to Guam. Yeah, me too. Today on the podcast, since we have been focusing on Kerwin so much over the last couple months, we're going to get into some health issues and some environmental issues, update you on some big things happening there. But first, Les and Natasha... The big news today as we record on Thursday, October 24th, is that Senate President Mike Miller, who we all know is battling cancer, this morning told the Democratic caucus that he will step down as Senate president. He's still going to remain in the Senate and represent the 27th district, but he's presided over the chamber for over 30 years. And I mean, it's hard to imagine another Senate president presiding over the chamber. And I know both of you have been here for a while, and he's the only Senate president any of us know. It is pretty historic. I mean, he's the longest serving Senate president in the nation. Yes. Yes. I mean, Les, you've been down here longer than Natasha and I. Do you have any fond memories? I mean, we all do. But any anything stick out for you in terms of your interactions with Senator Miller? To me and in my entire career here in Annapolis, there's always been a President Miller. And it is going to be a major change without him. Um, He's also been an institution for Culver County and Prince George's and Charles counties, but particularly Culvert, um, he's represented us. And my first impression, I was probably six or seven, and this will give away my age, probably around 1976 or so. I think he'd just become a senator. And he came out to the family farm, and we have a couple-acre pond, had bluegill and bass, and he wanted to go fishing. So um, he went down in the boat. And uh, I don't think he had much luck that day because my first impression of him was, boy, that man sure does curse a lot. (laughs) So I don't think he caught much that day. That's pretty good. So a lot of memories, and I'm sure around town we're going to keep hearing these memories of interactions with Senate President Miller. But also we learned today that the caucus unanimously nominated Senator Bill Ferguson from Baltimore City to be the next Senate president. Obviously, that doesn't automatically make him president, but with the majority that the Democrats have in the Senate and only one nominee, it certainly seems like Senator Ferguson will become the next president of the Senate. Obviously, it's a, it's a big deal for the city. It is. It is. Congrats to Senator Ferguson. All right. So I'm sure we'll have more to say uh, in the upcoming weeks here, probably some more changes to come, and we will cover those, of course, as soon as they happen. So, Natasha and Les, let's get into some issues outside of Kerwin. Natasha, first of all, we've talked about vaping a lot on this podcast. We know this has become an issue nationally, statewide, and at the local level. We've seen Montgomery County introduce some local bills. We've seen states introduce statewide bills. Now we hear from Maryland Comptroller Peter Francho that he is going to establish a task force. What's going on there, Natasha? What kind of input will the locals have? Yeah, so the task force he's establishing is set to uh, convene later this fall. They're set to make recommendations early next year. And um, what they're really focused on is studying the public health and public safety impacts of electronic smoking devices, the vapes, the cigarettes, as we know them. 
I mean, we've all heard the horror stories. We've heard people being sick, people dying from ostensibly from these vapes. What is the goal here? I mean, is there is there anything that they're really looking to do besides just maybe figure out what is causing people to get sick? Are they looking to do anything regulatory, you think? Well, I mean, when it comes to vaping, a lot is still unknown, especially related to this disease. Right. So really, the goals of the task force are to um, get a better understanding of the electronic smoking devices, um, as well as the, a comprehensive picture of the health and safety issues with it mm -hmm. um, and the commercial sales of the products in the state. Ideally, they'd come forward with some recommendations to protect consumer interests and particularly young people. Right. We know young people have been a big point of emphasis for a lot of the state and local bills that we've seen. So I would imagine that'll be a big emphasis here as well. Natasha, in terms of membership, this is going to just be a statewide group or are we going to have local representation from the counties here? Yeah, the, the group is looking for a broad representation. So local governments, public health institutions, um, safety and health experts, business representatives, representatives from the industry, education community. So we do expect to have local representation on that task force. And so we expect them to convene later this fall and then they'll continue into 2020. Is that right? Right. Exactly. We'll be on the lookout there for what they have to say. Obviously, this is a big issue, not going away. And now the state is going to take a closer look, it seems. Another big issue less in the environmental arena is solar. This is another issue that we've discussed at length on this podcast. And we haven't had you on in a while to talk about what's going on, but I know this is an issue that is ever-changing and there's a lot going on. So what is the latest with solar, Les? So solar remains a huge issue at both the state and the local level. There are a lot of counties out there that are looking to change and update their zoning to accommodate solar, particularly the big utility-scale facilities. And those are the ones subject to direct state oversight and also the ones where the state can preempt local governments and, and go against the wishes of local zoning. MACO's been in an uh, advisory role for a lot of different counties trying to say, here are best practices, here's what some counties have done that the PSC seems to be satisfied with and, and minimizes your risk uh, substantially to get preempted. And Les, a few years ago, you worked really hard on an initiative to get a bill passed to sort of give that guidance and create a roadmap for counties to, to try and show, hey, we're trying to work with the industry, but also we have to protect our local zoning and our land interests. Yes. In 2017, as a MAKO legislative initiative, we were successful in passing legislation basically requiring the Public Service Commission, the state body that reviews these big utility-scale solar projects. In addition, that was already in the law. They had to give due consideration to the county's position on a project. They additionally have to give separate consideration for whether the project is consistent or not with the county's comp plan and zoning, and also what, if anything, the developer did to work with and address county concerns. Mm -hmm. uh, that also, I should say, applies to municipalities, so it's local government. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, these utility-scale solar facilities, they are, as you said, the focus, right? This is more so what local governments are worried about just because of the, the space that they take up, right? And, you know, obviously counties have their comp plans and you don't want to see that overturned by a massive facility without the, the proper local input. So we're not talking about rooftop solar here. We're talking about the big facilities that you see driving down the road and they're just massive. Yes. I mean, rooftop is very important. And actually for MAKO, we, we've put a prioritization in our official position on solar uh, on rooftop solar development. 
and the smaller scale projects, community solar as well. But we recognize you're not going to get to the state's solar energy, renewable energy goals without some of these big projects. So if you're a county, you absolutely need to consider that and have some viable project site zoned for that. Mm -hmm. That will significantly decrease your risk of preemption. Um, the PSC basically wants the counties engaged. They want their municipalities. If you're affected by this, they want to hear from you. You do have a right to intervene as a party in every utility-scale solar decision considered by the PSC. And if you, you are interested in it, you should absolutely exercise that right. The PSC has basically said that. The biggest news recently is there's a lot of different groups looking at this. The biggest one right now, I think, uh, in terms of activity is the Governor's Task Force on Renewable Energy Development and Siting that was formed by Governor Hogan, uh, actually announced during the MAKO Summer Conference. And this will basically try to set up some best practices and a roadmap going forward. It's a two-year task force. This year for the session, we're going to see a preliminary report, which will include likely some recommendations for legislation, and then they'll continue their work through October of next year and offer a, a big final report. Uh, MAKO is a representative on this task force. Um, I'm currently the representative and will continue in that for at least the near future. And so, I mean, you talked about the state's renewable energy goals. Let's remind folks of, of what those are and sort of, you know, how we can get there. You know, we've heard about solar. We've heard about wind. Those are the, the two big ones in terms of ways we can we can hit those targets, right, Les? Correct. Now, I mean, I, solar more so than wind, right? Well, I need to make a distinction here. Okay. So there's two standards we're trying to go for. We have the Clean Energy Jobs Act, which passed this last session, 2019. That requires 50% renewable energy used by the state by 2030. That can be in-state or out-of-state renewable energy. But also a subcategory of that is 14.5% of that will have to be solar, and mm -hmm. that is in-state solar. So that's going to put a huge pressure on, on that for development of solar, whether it's rooftop, community, or the bigger utility scale, which likes to go in open space and farmland. The other goal that's out there is Governor Hogan announced a, a, a clean and renewable energy standard, or CARES for short, and that calls for 100% clean electricity by 2040. Now, clean electricity is basically zero carbon. That's different from renewables. Uh, that includes renewables like wind and solar, which is what most people think of, but it also includes nuclear, uh, combined heat and power, and large-scale hydroelectric, like the Conowingo Dam. No one's thinking about developing nuclear, you know, in Maryland, right? That's not really on the table. That's a big federal process, right, and a lot of hoops to jump through. So one thing uh, that the task force is looking at and that the state is looking at, uh, also the Maryland uh, Commission on Climate Change, I think, are going to focus on um, potentially modular nuclear, smaller scale nuclear technology, small reactors. Um, people, when they think nuclear, think these giant power plants like Calvert Cliffs, and they're certainly still around. And mm -hmm. yes, I, it would be very difficult and challenging to get another plant online in Maryland because of the cost and scope. But remember, there are nuclear reactors that power aircraft carriers, that power submarines. The University of Maryland had a nuclear reactor way back in the day when I went there, a very small one in the engineering department. So they're out there. The technology is not quite ready for prime time, but but to sense, consider it in the short term future, not this decade, but several decades out. Uh, that could help a lot of giving a, a relatively safe baseline energy source, zero uh, carbon polluting out there. Not sure if it can happen or not, but it's worth looking into. And Natasha, you and I were talking yesterday about 
gray fields, right? And you were mentioning some spots in the city where it seemed like they'd be perfect spots to install solar panels, even on the, the rooftops in the city's parking garages, right? I mean, across the state, these exist, but particularly in Baltimore City, there does seem to be a lot of space where solar could be really beneficial. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, when it comes to parking areas and garages and other places like that, it would be beneficial to have solar there. Sure. And so, Les, what about gray fields? I mean, has there been much discussion about that? And I guess we should define what a gray field is, too. So, absolutely. Um, and, and there are discussions. Gray fields are generally viewed as larger scale rather than rooftop. Think about you're putting in your home or a business. Right. And that can still take up some space. Like you have a Costco or something with a big rooftop space. That is a lot of panels. When you move out to gray fields more broadly, you're talking about parking lots. And there's an awful lot of open parking lot sur- uh, surface mm-hmm. in, in the city. Also, warehouse rooftops. Mm-hmm. So things around the port, around BWI airport, you've got Amazon sorting centers, we have a number of those throughout the state. Those, you can put literally acres on a rooftop. And the advantage of rooftop solar and building on these gray fields is it's you're already doing the built environment. It's basically smart growth for energy. Typically, you're also using most or all of that energy at the same site you're generating that. So that takes some stress off of the grid and, and infrastructure. And that's going to be a major problem going forward as we develop more renewable energy sources mm-hmm. and have to move energy around, electricity around a lot more in the grid than we used to. And that's a problem why, Les, because when you're moving this electricity, you know, further and further, what happens, you know, with my solar panel producing this energy, sending it through the grid, what happens as you go further and further down the line? So with any electricity, um, the biggest thing is transmission loss. The farther you have to send it, the more you're going to lose in the lines. Mm -hmm. There's an additional challenge with if you're going to have a lot of renewable energy sources generating energy and they're going to be generating different amounts at different time, whether it's wind, the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine, you're going to have differential loads and that's going to require a lot of grid upgrades to handle that distributed load more because right now the grid's set up for you have a couple of large-scale power producers but they produce generally a constant amount of power that goes along the grid. Right. Now you're going to have spikes and surges and decreases, and they're going to have to have electricity moving from one region to another when uh, the wind goes down or the sun isn't there. So it, it, that's going to be challenging to address grid issue. The other big issue is battery capacity. If you're right. really going to push, especially more than a 50% renewable energy portfolio, you're going to need huge battery facilities because – Uh, Even in a best-case scenario, if you can get that perfect mix of onshore wind, offshore wind, and solar in Maryland, in the course of a year, you're still going to have a number of periods where none of that is able to generate enough power to cover our electricity needs. Right. And if you're not going to use nuclear or combined heater power or even in the short term natural gas as a bridging technology – you're going to have a real problem and you're going to have to have these massive storage facilities. And that creates its own challenges and issues and cost. Right. So – this task force continues to meet. What does that mean in terms of legislation for 2020 less? We've seen over the past few years legislation dealing with solar, some good, some bad in the eyes of, of MAKO and, and local governments. What does it mean now that this task force is meeting for legislation in 2020? I think that's still a little up in the air. We've had three meetings to date. Um, they've largely been informational meetings, both MAKO and MML presented at the last meeting trying to lay out county concerns and municipal concerns and and what we would like to see considered. I think for this preliminary report, they're looking at what can they do to respect local zoning and provide assistance to that 
what can they do to address concerns from the energy developers? Um, and I think especially about providing some level of certainty and, and surety as we move forward. They're also, I think, in the process of identifying key issues that when they have a little more time for next year's work, they'll dig in a little deeper. But the goal would be to come up with some large blueprint, whether it's a map or just some best practices and guidelines about where the state and local governments would want solar to go, encourage it, and others where they want to discourage it or maybe even prohibit it. So it sounds like, you know, at least they're they're asking for the local input and they are strongly considering local government's input in this process, which is certainly encouraging to hear. Yes. Okay. Anything else on solar less before we go ahead and take a break? I think we, we've heard quite enough from that and we'll <laughs> let, let the clouds go over and the solar panel shut off for a little bit. All right. We'll shut them down for a bit. We're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we will get into an issue that is very important to local governments and counties. That is inmate health care. We'll talk about climate change and then we'll give you an update on opioid litigation, all that and more after the break. This is John Frenet with Ion Annapolis to let you know about our daily news brief podcast. If you want to keep up on Annapolis area local news, local weather, and local events, check us out. We produce episodes every Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and deliver them right to your phone or computer for free. You can also catch them on our Facebook page, All Annapolis, or under the podcast category at ionanapolis.net. You can even ask Alexa to play it for you. So if you want to keep up to speed on Mayor Buckley, County Executive Pittman, Navy football, maybe you're looking for a weekend thing to do, or if you just want to catch the hyper-local weather, give a listen to the Ion Annapolis Daily News Brief. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canelli back here with Natasha Mayhew and Les Snap. Natasha and Les, we are going to discuss an issue that is very, very important to state and local governments as well as the federal government. And this is, Natasha, Medicaid inmate exclusion and health care in jails. We know that counties, local governments spend a lot of money on health care in jails. There is a task force, Natasha, and I know you have some updates on this issue area, and I'm sure a lot of folks are, are wondering what's going on here. Sure. So I'll start by explaining what the Medicaid and May exclusion is. And so this is a federal policy, removes Medicaid um, benefits as well as veterans benefits from individuals as they're admitted into jail. Mm -hmm. um, so this um, exclusion from Medicaid benefits applies even when they're pretrial and haven't been convicted. Once you're in a jail, you cannot use Medicaid to pay for the services. So you lose those federal benefits, but obviously somebody still has to provide those services. Right. And in Maryland, we're a little bit of ahead of other states in that um, under state law, we suspend the Medicaid benefits mm -hmm. rather than terminate. So, again, you can't use it while they're in jail, but it makes the process a little bit easier on the tail end when they're released. However, in many states, once they enter into jail, the benefits are completely terminated. You have to start the process all over again mm. once people are released. This is a real problem because, as we've known, we've talked about on this podcast, inmates in jail have numerous health problems, whether it's mental illness issues, substance abuse, other chronic health conditions. Um, and there really is a connection between... Um, um, them not receiving good health care or having to transition back into the general community and having those health benefits disrupted with their recidivism and other rates. Right. The Supreme Court has ruled that, you know, jails and prisons have to provide health services to, to whomever they're holding because they're essentially wards of the state. I mean, they're in your custody. 
but we can right. only to not do, do so, so much. would be cruel and unusual. That's right. That's right. But we can only do so much. I mean, there are only so many resources available. So this really affects local governments and state governments. What is going on to try and mitigate these effects onto the state and local governments? Yeah. So NACO, the National Association of Counties and the National Sheriff's Association have formed a joint task force on inmate health care issues. And so represented on this task force are county leaders, law enforcement, judges, prosecutors, public defenders, behavioral health specialists, veteran service providers. Right, because you said veterans benefits were a part of this as well. Right. Right. Um, and so they're looking at numerous things in inmate health care, but one of the major things they're looking at is this Medicaid inmate exclusion and their efforts on a national level, on a federal level, because it's a federal policy, mm-hmm. to uh, repeal that exclusion. So, I mean, in terms of a timeline here, this would obviously have to be done at the federal level. And we know Congress is uh, is not getting much done these days. What would need to happen in order to to overturn this exclusion? And I mean, it seems like this work group and this task force, they're doing great work and all the players seem to be at the table. I mean, are you seeing any movement here? Does there seem to be any momentum toward getting this thing done? I think there's a lot of action in terms of advocating for it. Um, I believe there are a couple of bills that have recently been introduced on a federal level. In the county association world, NACO has really taken the lead on the on the federal advocacy on this effort. Um, I mentioned in Maryland, we've taken some steps to at least mitigate mm-hmm. some of those harms. And I know there's um, advocacy in other states to similarly, at least like Maryland, to suspend rather than terminate. Those are smaller steps being taken on a um, local state level there. Sure. So NACO, the National Association, seems to be really taking the lead here, along with the National Sheriff's Association and other key players. Seems like there is a big push for this. And and as you said, there has been some action at the state level to sort of mitigate these issues. But hopefully we can we can keep pushing this thing forward and and there'll be federal action to, to deal with this issue. Right. Okay, so let's shift back to, Les, the environmental world, and let's talk about climate change. This is one of your favorite subjects, Les, and Natasha and I love to listen to you talk about climate change because you are the in-house guru, and I would say one of the leading experts. So, Les, obviously, this is a, a, a big issue, but what can you tell us about what has been happening recently? I think there is also a work group dealing with climate change. Yes, the state has a commission to address climate change Um originally created by executive order, later put in a statute. And just last week, uh, the Maryland Department of the Environment released a long-awaited draft plan on how the state's going to meet its new climate change goal. Right. And that, I mean, it's only about 500 pages. And I know you've already read it, right, Les? You, you know it front to back and, you know, you can recite it word for word. Um, Sure. <clears throat> right. Uh, of course. Right. Not quite, but I, I am working through that. But this plan basically outlines um, how... The state and county governments and municipalities will have to reach our new greenhouse gas reduction goals, which was put into statute. It was passed with bipartisan support and the support of Governor Hogan. We have a current climate change goal to reduce 25% of our greenhouse gas emissions from 2006 levels by 2025. We're on track to meet that uh, with the programs that have been created and implemented. Mm -hmm. The new goal, which this plan addresses, is 40% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 with an aspirational goal of going higher, potentially 80 percent by 2050 or even more. And also, as part of that, the the plan cannot cause a net decrease of jobs 
or a net economic decrease. Mm, so, so it has to be beneficial to the economy and for job growth. That's that sounds tough, but obviously there there are 500 pages, uh, you know, detailing how we can get there. Less. Let's talk about some of the highlights that are in this draft report. So, so it is a tall order. Uh, I think the plan was due at the start of this year, obviously been delayed for a while, uh, and I think largely because of that. The plan will result, if all goes according to plan, in a 44% reduction, as well as setting the stage for future reductions past uh, 2030. I think the four key areas in the plan that will affect county governments are kind of broad. There's a lot. There's hundreds when you get into the sub recommendations. There's hundreds of, of these. But broadly, you've got four areas to look at. The first and, and biggest will be, um, I think, transportation. They're looking at how do you reduce vehicle miles traveled? What do you do to get cars uh, to zero emission? Obviously, electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. From a county perspective, I think the biggest thing will be electrification of your vehicle fleet. Mm -hmm. That includes school buses as well as your work vehicles, your operational vehicles. Obviously, for some things that require high horsepower, such as snow plows or tractors, there's no electric version available right. yet. Right. But as that technology matures, maybe they'll be able to figure that out. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, it sounds like, obviously, you know, it's a big capital expenditure, but as you're phasing out maybe some of the, the more gas guzzler fleets, it seems pretty logical to, to maybe migrate to a cleaner fleet and maybe an electric fleet. Yes, and, and the state and MDOT are also looking at the same type of action. Number two, I think in the land use area, there's several provisions in the plan that call for more compact development. Again, I think keeping in smart growth, trying to concentrate your development footprint, that requires less trips, less vehicle miles traveled, uh, much shorter distance to provide all of the county services that people expect and rely upon. Now, I mean, you say that, does that mean, you know, is the state going to be stepping on the county's toes in terms of comp plans and, and what the county wants to do in terms of development or they're working together? So I have to read through the fine print of the right. plan, but broadly, I think it's more um, continuation and maybe slight enhancement of existing policies mm -hmm. to generate, put compact development in place. Um, I think there'll be some look at building code issues to make it easier to build more densely um, and just continuing on. Um, but there could be some other things in there. Obviously, MAKO takes land use autonomy very seriously. Uh, it's one of our big uh, yellow line issues. So we'll see where that's at. Okay. Number three would be energy. And we've already talked a lot about solar and renewable energy. Uh, so this is a key component of the climate change plan as well. Uh, so no need to cover that in much detail. And number four uh, will apply particularly for those of you that run landfills or wastewater treatment plants, methane it, and cracking down on methane emissions is going to become a big issue. Uh, it's a major concern. And from the county areas, those are your two facilities that are pretty big methane generators. So uh, to the extent there's going to be some additional requirements on, on methane capture and, and containment and, and use, that will be there. And that could have some costs for local governments. Okay, so those are really the four pillars that you say affect the counties. We have this draft report now. What is what are the next steps? What is going on at this point with this this commission? And you know, do you see again anything in terms of legislation uh, for the upcoming session to implement a lot of the things you were just talking about? Or is there going to be more meetings in the weeks and months ahead? So that, that there's an easy answer for that. This is the draft plan. It was just put out by MDE, so it is open now for public comment. Okay. 
I did a blog article on this in last week's Conduit Street blog uh, that includes the broad strokes of the plan as well as uh, links on how you can submit a comment directly. Mako is going to be reviewing the plan and submitting comments. It just came out, so you've got some time on it. Um, I don't think they've put a full time limit on yet. In fact, they do plan and are formulating some public hearings across the state. They'll do in different counties, and they'll probably try to uh, include during some of uh, the existing organizations piggybacking on their meetings. So like maybe a Mako conference or a Mako meeting of our planners or something, they'll come out and do that, and they'll do that across the board. Okay. So in terms of legislation, though, I mean, it seems like there's not going to be enough time between now and the public comment period for legislation, at least dealing with this draft report. But we still could see legislation, I'm assuming, regarding climate change in 2020. Absolutely. I don't think at this point the administration has plans to introduce legislation directly related to the plan, but I'm sure other legislators have have their own ideas. There's been a whole range of of ideas put out. Some, I think, from Mako's view, fairly radical. Um, One was a proposal on compact development, meaning a ban on any future zoning for single-family detached housing. Right. Uh, I mean, and not that I think Mako would say that necessarily is a bad thing. Don't tell the counties that's what we have to do, right? That's really our position on land use is we want to have that local autonomy to do what's best for for our local communities and for our residents. Correct. I think even from Maryland itself, you look at the forms of development, a lot of municipalities have very dense development, but they're still single family detached housing. So that would be a major change trying to go forward to saying that wouldn't work in these communities anymore. Take your time now, Les, read through the 500 pages. I mean, it's great material. Natasha and I are going to be reading it. Uh, I'm sure. Natasha, I know it's on your bedside table right now. You read it every oh, night. Oh, yeah, of course. Right? So, sure. you know, we, we, <laughs> there'll be a quiz. And finally, Natasha, I want to get into a quick update on opioid litigation. This is another issue that we've been covering for a while here. I think the last time we talked about this, we were looking forward to a case in Ohio to really set the tone moving forward. And, and you have an update for us here, Natasha. What happened this week in Ohio? When we've been talking about this issue, there have been actually numerous cases we've discussed. A couple of major ones playing out in Ohio. There is the um, big nationwide case moving forward against all the manufacturers, distributors. um, And that case is broad to include all states, counties, local governments. Mm -hmm. What has happened recently is another smaller case that uh, reached a settlement between two Ohio counties and opioid manufacturers. Um, So this case is significant in that it's a little bit of a look at what could be in the future for the joint case that's moving forward. So Cuyahoga and Summit counties, and really this was a settlement that came at the 11th hour, right? I mean, they were ready to go to trial here. And then all of a sudden we heard that, you know what, there was a settlement, not all of the companies involved here settled, but at least some did. Right. So, so, I mean, how much money are we talking about here for, for these two counties? And, and, you know, do the counties seem like they're happy with how this has transpired so far? And, you know, obviously anything to help mitigate these, these terrible circumstances caused by the opioid epidemic is a good thing. Right. So it was a $260 million settlement. The money from the settlement will go to addiction treatment, um, other support uh, in those two counties. Mm -hmm. I mean, so pretty good chunk of change, it seems, for two counties, although we know that these costs have been absolutely astronomical for counties to deal with the effects of of this. But, you know, it's good that that money is going to get directly to the folks that need it. And so obviously, the sooner the better. And um, one thing with this settlement is that, as I mentioned, there are all there's 
the big national case. There are a number of smaller cases of individual counties um, pursuing litigation against the manufacturers and distributors. Um, and really, the more that we see settlements occurring, the more it pushes forward getting results in those other cases, as people do not want, tend not to want to stay in litigation over issues. It also does raise concerns for some of those others that are holding out, um, like does the, does the amount of money in the pot dwindle then um, with mm. with these settlements happening on a piecemeal basis? So maybe some incentive for folks to try and go ahead and settle this. Right, exactly. Important to mention too, I mean, the, these companies that settle, and this is a recurring theme, they are not admitting guilt, right? They 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 deny the accusations made against them, but obviously, as you said, they don't want to drag out litigation and they want this to get to a resolution. The the big case in Ohio, we're still going to have to wait for that one as well, right? That's still on track to, to be heard in federal court? Right. Again, uh, there's just many different yeah. cases, many different players, um, settlements happening uh, across the board. And really, we discussed earlier uh, in earlier podcasts when Purdue settled. Mm -hmm. The idea there and for the people that are settling is that they're trying to get these settlements as broad as possible so that the other cases do not move forward against them. They're looking for global settlements. Okay, so some news there seems like we're, we're moving forward on some of these issues. Obviously, there is a lot of incentive to get this stuff done, to get the money to these 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 folks who need it as soon as possible. But this is an issue that we'll have to continue to monitor. We do need to mention, too, everything we've talked about here today. We have an upcoming conference. It's going to be in Cambridge. It's in December. Talk about what you all are planning in terms of the issues that you just talked about that we're going to see at the upcoming Make a Winner Conference. We talked about vaping and we will have a conference session on vaping. It's being sponsored by uh, Macho, the Maryland Association of County Health Officers. And so that'll be addressing all the issues that you talked about today with this task force, but also efforts that are going on and, you know, what we're doing to sort of try and contain this this epidemic, as some folks call it, of, of vaping and particularly youth vaping. Yeah, the panel will include health experts, um, local government officials and people uh, experts in um, the legal matters associated with vaping. So it will be a very comprehensive panel looking at uh, the vaping issue. And you're also going to have a session on inmate health care. Is that right? Yes, we will also have a session on inmate health care. And that will look at the uh, Medicaid inmate exclusion policy, but also broadly at issues facing inmate health care. Les, you also have a number of sessions that you're working on, including on some of the issues you talked about today. Yes, we'll have not one, but two panels on energy. First will be a general session on the state's transition to renewable and clean energy and what that means for Maryland's future. And the second is a panel sponsored by the county planners and attorneys that will dig into some best practices and, and legal issues around zoning for renewable energy, particularly zoning for solar. Uh, for climate change, we'll also have a session that will walk through uh, a review of the climate change plan by December, they should have be well into the public comment phase or even maybe towards the end of it, uh, but not concluded yet, and get a sense of what that means for the counties uh, and more broadly for the state going forward. So the Make a Winter Conference, December 4th through the 6th at the Hyatt Regency Chesapeake Bay Hotel in Cambridge. These sessions that you just heard about are just a few of many that we will have. The focus and the theme this year is building for the future. We're going to focus on governance challenges and best practices from the foundation to the rooftop that will really decide Maryland's future. 
Be there or be square. That's right. <laughs> Some That's of you right. younger listeners may have to look up what that means. <laughs> There'll be a quiz on that next time. Les, we'll have you on to, to follow up there. But for now, Kevin signing off. For Natasha and Les, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, each episode gets sent directly to you. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And of course, follow up with our Conduit Street blog, where you can read more about everything you've heard today. Until next time, signing off, and we will talk to you soon.